Hello all and welcome to our podcast. We are the Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host Danny and with me as always is my co-host Nick. Hello. The premise of our show is simple. For each week we have carefully picked two films which we think have things in common. We shall then discuss them to find what their common traits are. One is my suggestion based on my particular area of expertise, Golden Age of Hollywood, and the other is chosen by my co-host, which is from their specialty. So that'll be anything from 1970s New Hollywood through to the current blockbuster age that we're living in. The only rule is both picks of the week have to be a first time viewing for the other person. So this week uh, we've got our theme is Asian stereotypes. Am I right? Orient. Orientalism. Orient. Yeah, the Orient, Asia. Um, its portrayal in Hollywood. Um. One of the films being from 1932, and the other one being from 1986, so yeah. So we'll start with the 1932 film, uh, a Frank Capra production, direct, um, starring Barbara Stanwyck. I can't wait to talk about Barbara Stanwyck. Um, it is, of course, The Bitter Tea of General Yen. Um, so it's about a Chinese warlord and an engaged Christian missionary who fall in love. So Nick, why did you think of the film? So this is another pre-code film. It is! Um, oh, I'm glad you picked up on it. I, I picked up on it. I, I <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's got some, some quite shocking violence for the era. Um, there's some quite real sexiness going on. Um, <laughs> there's some real moral ambiguity, and um, a Danish-born Swede playing a Chinese warlord. Um, so yeah, it's it's a film from 1932. Um, yeah. Uh, so all right, Barbara Stanwyck. Let's let's do let's do Barbara Stanwyck first. Let's talk about her first. Um, she's an actress I know by name. Uh, like many many other stars from that era i just know them by name and only till now um you know by performance um she is not what i expected like she's so like innocently beautiful um in this i, I think this probably may maybe how she's kind of lit um the lighting had you seen um, any other films by her before no, no, no. That's what I mean. Like, the, apart from this film, though, this is the first Barb Stanwyck film. You know, she's always been an actress I've known by name, not by performance. Um, cool. you know, Meg, Megan, like, you know, she's a she's a woman of pride, and I could, and then I could totally see her falling for General Yang. Um, you know, it kind of never felt forced or like a departure for her character. It kind of felt very natural. Um, and then at the end, like kind of how she portrays like an acceptance almost um i thought was i thought was very powerful um in her kind of in her performance and her facial expressions and what have you um the love story itself i thought was very compelling um i have complained in the past uh of not being pulled in by by romance of not being convinced 
um, not referencing any particular past episode, but uh, there's definitely one one recent one. Um, this this is not this is not one of those times. Um, I definitely felt a chemistry between Barbara Stanwyck and uh, Neil Zasler, who plays General Yang. Um, I, I you know the the sequence where she kind of falls asleep and it's like this daydream kind of thing going on. Um, which I thought was quite uh, interesting in a film from 1932. It seemed quite a bit experimental for for that, you know, for that era. For basically, well, from Hollywood anyway, I I, I think, um, and it just felt very kind of sizzling at times. Um, Frank Capra is a director. I, I I I again like I've only really known by name, and until very very recently, until about four. You must have. Well, you must have well, seen. It's a Wonderful Life. I hadn't until December last year. Okay. Um, because okay. I, I finally finally got round to watching it uh, last year. So in fact, yeah, like again, like I've seen this all not alive now, but you know, I I I that this was kind of a departure from what I've seen in It's a Wonderful Life. Um, but yeah. Uh, so on to Neil Zasser. Uh, a Danish-born Swede playing a Chinese warlord. Um, yeah, the yellow face is is completely inexcusable. Um, <laughs> but I uh, I kind of bought it. <laughs> um, maybe because it's in black and white. Um, he looks nothing like a person from China. No way does he look Asian. Um, even with the mustache, the thin mustache, and the quite racially ridiculous eyebrows you can ridiculous say it. eyebrows yeah they are racially insensitive eyebrows um yeah his his accent is way off um his use of mandarin when he does in the odd occasion the the few occasions where he actually speaks mandarin or what i can assume is substituted for mandarin um it's very questionable um at one point his concubine, I can't remember her name, uh, Mali. Mali, um, starts talking to him in Mandarin. I'm assuming this is Mandarin because it's Shanghai, not Cantonese. It is, yeah. Yeah. Um, and she starts talking to him in Mandarin and then he turns around and says, speak English. And I was like, well, well done. <laughs> you, you got around that. <laughs> there are no, there are no English characters in this scene yet. You found a way to, 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 to get us to, to speak English. Um, yeah, his character was very alluring and mysterious, and but yeah, I I had a, I had I was surprised that I didn't have as many issues as I did with General Yang as I did with other parts of the film. Um, I have a lot of issues with its portrayal of the Chinese. Um, here they are kind of mischievous, sneaky, untrustworthy, backstabbing, violent. Um, everything that the honourable Christian missionaries aren't. Um, and this is this is still an issue today with with the portrayal of the other in media. Um, the other I'm gonna I'm just gonna throw a little bit of theory out out there. Um, so the other being a term popularised by a guy called Edward Said in his book um, Orientalism, which uh, talks about the kind of how Arabic or Ar it was mainly Middle Eastern um, portrayals of you know in media and well in Western 
uh, world, kind of how the how the Middle Eastern, you know, people from the Middle East are, are portrayed, and how they are seen as quite dirty and feminized almost. Um, and this is this is an issue that is still that it, it you know is you can see in its in this portrayal of of China, like you know they are they are de seen as the other, um, in that they are a lower. I don't want to say life form, but they are lower down in in the racial hierarchy. You know, whites are the best kind of thing. You know, it's it's total bullshit. But you know, this is kind of how Western media, Western ideas have kind of um, been developed over the years. What with uh, colonialism, you know, the British Empire being responsible for quite a lot of it. Um, so yeah, this is still an issue with the portrayal of the other uh, in media today. Um, you know, think about how, you know, for example, you watch, I don't know, watch, um, watch anything that's, that's seemingly meant to be set, you know, set in Iran or something, and it's always seen as quite dirty and dusty. Or think about how, like, Eastern Europe is portrayed in media sometimes, and it, it just comes across as though it's they're taking out outtakes from, you know, war footage of the Kosovan War or something, and yet, you know, it's not anything like that um, in real life. Are you saying? But... Are you saying that media is doctoring the truth? That is unheard of. Yeah, I mean, who who would have thought that would have happened? Um, yeah. But the, the, this is this is I'm saying it's from media. I'm I'm saying that media is responsible for it, but it's also like in attitudes as well like in in just pop, you know in just attitude of people in general like you think of what and i what maybe somebody would think of um i don't know like so you think about how people see um when you play the the there's these bit, a series of video games the call of duty franchise for example um i'm using them as an example because they 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 always portray the um, the middle east um as dusty with um abandoned cars you know abandoned buildings and it, it it's it's not that you know it, it it's not like that you'd, you'd look at pictures or contemporary pictures of what it's like in iran for example and it's it's nothing like that um you know it, it is it's taking a small part of what people think and just amplifying it to represent the whole and this is what this film is doing with the chinese um you know it's it's showing them as you know almost almost like the asian version of of mexicans you know of how they how hollywood portrays you know mexicans in westerns for example or the indians in westerns for example you know they're just using that those tropes but for the for the chinese and it's it's very troubling it, it's not but again this is 1932 so yeah i've got a take that for what it is um you know that the 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 character of general young you know appears to be honorable you know especially in in you know the company of megan um but then you know he's shown to order the execution of quite a lot of people um and then the asian actors in the cast even uh mali played by toshia mori are kind of just nothing more than side characters meant to reinforce stereotypes um there's a scene where she's Kind of, they're they're sitting around a dinner table and the the American bloke Jones kind of just points out that she's not worthy to sit upon the main table and 
it's um, no i think she sits on the main table but she has to sit on a lower chair no no yeah that's that's what i mean like she's no but she's even got a lower table like that it's like a staggered thing and it's like it's just reinforcing stereotypes um yeah i i thought i thought the the film was interesting in its portrayal of the christian missionaries um while it still kind of maintains the white savior myth that is in a lot of hollywood films even you to really this think day. it does that well i i think it does in that the fact that she's white and she goes across to general young and she kind of like saves him almost from his you know warlord ways you know brings him into the light almost um <laughs> i thought it I mean? was like, the other way around okay i mean the film i just said like, the film kind of it does in my opinion it still kind of maintains that whole white savior myth in that the christian missionaries are kind of sent over to china and and you know they're better than them so they must save them from their savagery but the film almost kind of denounces them for being really naive and almost kind of quite ambivalent towards them i mean the towards the missionaries the, yeah the film is quite ambivalent towards they are the naive they are presented in a very naive way there I, yeah. I agree with that um and then jones the the american assistant that i you know spoke of he, he's perhaps even more greedy and more money hungry than the chinese enemies of yang you know like it's it's quite kind of interesting that um so i'm going to kind of finish up my thoughts on the film from for, with a quote from an article i read on preco.com about the film um which i'll link to in the show notes um I'll also link to, um, there's a piece on Senses of Cinema, which I found, which kind of goes into a bit more detail about the Christian values in the film, which I thought was quite an interesting read. Um, but uh, it's be, me being not a Christian person, I can't really comment on it because, it, you know, I don't see the parallels, but I thought it was an interesting read. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, this is from precode.com, uh, which kind of, like I said, kind of sums up my thoughts a little bit better than... I think I would have done. Um, after Yen's final cup of bitter tea, Megan and Joan sail on a ship back to Shanghai. In a series of long, beautiful shots and one long, drunken speech from Jones, we see that he's learned something from their experience about nobility, life and poetry. Believe it or not, both have discovered that the Chinese aren't bloodthirsty simpletons and that love and friendship may be beat out money and blind spiritualism in being the most potent weapons of the changing world um so yeah while i have like i said while i have issues with the, the general asian stereotypes in the film and how it kind of reinforces the the idea of the other general young as a character the title character doesn't even though he's played by a danish born you know a danish born swede um it doesn't kind of reinforce it you know it doesn't hit you know the main character doesn't reinforce that um so i think that was the, that quote saying like you know the chinese aren't bloodthirsty simpletons i mean i think he's referring he sh you know he should be referring to general yang you know general yang isn't a bloodthirsty simpleton he, you know he, no. he's shown like, this love and friendship and you know absolutely um so, that's yeah, what I, I meant I yeah um that's what i meant when i said that he more or less saves her rather than than her saving him um i will get to that in a minute um are those all your notes on yeah i thought i thought it was like i said i thought it's a very interesting film to be watching um in this context um especially about you know we had a conversation a few weeks ago about gone with the wind um 
you yeah know, it, it's it's quite interesting to watch this film kind of from the same you know era um you know dawn with winds obviously different era but in terms of not pre-code film it's a post-code film as it were um you know like it's 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 interesting to kind of view it view it in 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 this in this aspect and you know a few weeks ago we had red dust and i complained quite a lot about the asian characters in that and one of them in particular which is a very very horrible stereotype um that is disgusting to see on screen yeah um and this film kind of does the same thing but not with general yang it does it with the actual people played by asian you know asian actors um and the asian extra extras so yeah i I said it's an interesting case study i think it's a very interesting case study and and i was some of the filmmaking techniques in it i thought were very very impressive um i don't know if you (laughs) like I did read something about it being Capra's attempt at getting an Oscar um, and that he didn't have much money. So like a lot of the techniques or something, you know, I I, I think I remember reading um, that the cinematographer um, this guy called Joseph Walker. Um, you know, he works, you know, he's worked with Capra quite a lot. So like, I think, you know, his relationship kind of helped shape the look of the film. Um, so yeah, that, I, yeah, I I thought it was very interesting, and it was a very interesting watch. And I'm, you know, like I said, it's 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 good to be viewing it in this context of of race in film. Yeah. Uh, cool. So I I have a few notes on this, of course, um, and I will I will talk a bit about Barbara Stanwyck. So bear with me. She she got a nickname, isn't she? Like people refer to her as Stanny. Um, me and my friends do refer to her as Stanny. Um, because she's 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 great. <laughs> I think she's one of the best actresses of all time. Um, and one of the very few freelance. Um, actors during the studio system. Oh, I need to, I need to, I need to recant a statement. I said that this is my first Barbara Stanwyck film. Not actually true. I've seen Double Indemnity. Of course you have. I was. That's why I was like, Are you sure you haven't seen her in anything? Ah, I have seen her in Double Indemnity. So yeah, I I recant that statement. This is my first yeah. <laughs> Barbara Stanwyck film. Uh, I yeah she was she was a freelancer she wasn't a part of any uh, particular studio so you know how in 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 the thirties and forties each studio had a, a a roster of of actors and actresses that were on contract and if anybody any other con- uh, studio wanted to make a film with them they would borrow them on contract um she was a freelancer so she worked with the likes of frank capra billy wilder um which made her into a household name i could talk endlessly about how incredible she is she's done comedy western film noir melodrama tv shows in the 60s 70s and 80s i think she's had more longevity than even um catherine hepburn uh and she's been almost just as versatile yeah I think, yeah, I think 
she's one of yeah she's one of the very few actresses who started during the pre-code and was working well into the 80s i grew up watching thornbirds but i was too young to realize that the slight the matriarch the old lady full of passion for the young priest was actually the great barbara stanwyck um yeah I, I can probably talk about her career more than i've done with betty davis but i will not not this time maybe you should we should do a bonus episode on on the career of barbara stanwyck i think but the pf general we end deserves quite a bit of attention in itself like you said it's an interesting case study it was made in 1932 at the height of pre-code it is toying with the idea of, of miscegenation uh which is basically having people from different um, racial backgrounds falling in love it could not because of the code and because of it being 1932 it could not have cast an asian actor in the role which is why we have Niels Aster. i mean the pre-code wasn't fully enforced until july 1934 but the legislation of it had been written in 1930 this is why the period from 1930 until 1934 is called pre-code because the code was there but most of the people most of the producers chose to ignore it however they could not ignore this rule written in letters of fire because it was it was one of those big things that you couldn't have you couldn't have if they had released that film with an asian actor no one would go to see it it would it would have been suicide so yeah the film starts with presenting asians in a bad light like you said but at the same time i feel like they're inviting us to judge those who say things like um that woman at the beginning like the chains are highly treacherous and immoral and whatnot they're supposed to be all these people we, we we meet at the beginning they're supposed to be missionaries and help people and not judge them so when you see them being oh yeah uh we're in this country and they're having civil wars and they're having this and that and they're bar they're uh, barbarians and you you shouldn't trust them and whatnot it fails to present the background of the chinese civil war um it, i would have loved to have seen a bit more background on that and why why is there a civil war and what is happening of course this is not important for american audiences so it it it's just background information and we don't need to know about it however i think there's m multi layers to both asian ma main characters so let's just for the sake of argument say yen is played but well it's not played by asian but he's representing asia um and so is Mali played by Toshia Mori and I think Toshia Mori is Japanese I, I need to double check that but you see them and they they're not just barbarians I'll get to that in a minute I just wanted to sort of start with with the idea of like oh yeah we have these missionaries going to China so Barbara Stanwyck arrives in Shanghai to marry his her childhood sweetheart after not seeing him for three years okay who does that never mind missionaries do that uh i thought i thought it was quite funny funny well in a pre-code way it, the the meeting of of megan with general yen 
was kind of a, a, a yeah a pre-code version of the meet cute moment where the rickshaw boy gets run over and dies and then we see Megan meet General Yen. Uh, in this film, I think you. I, I'm glad that you picked up on it on on the beauty of Barbara Stanwyck, the innocence of her. She she has a beauty that is both girl next door, like a simplicity to it, but also quite overwhelming. Uh, and it made me made me think of that scene from As Good as It Gets. When have you have you seen As Good as It Gets? I haven't. No. Uh, th- there's a scene at one point where Greg Kinnear's character t- says to Helen Hunt's character, you're the reason why cavemen chiseled on walls. And I think that quality is also Barbara Stanwyck. There's a there's something na- natural about her that you just is so mesmerizing. And it's also a tribute to her collaboration to Fra- with Frank Capra. They started working together in 1930 with Ladies of Leisure, and I think Capra managed to understand her as an actress. And they had a really, they collaborated quite a few times. And I might try to sneak one, another one of those Capra Stanley collaborations, uh, on our podcast later on. I loved the um, the scene on the train. You have glance between the the main the three main characters you have general yen uh, megan and marley and there's glance 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 marley understands she's been replaced from because she was the main concubine but you see from a glance you see that general yen prefers the white woman now and then megan draws over the, the covers over herself um to sort of say yeah i don't want any attention from you thank you very much but it's already the sort of understanding's already happened, and the seed of of desire, let's say, has been planted. The dream sequence you've mentioned um, at the time it was absolutely scandalous. I read that they had to make it look as surrealistic as possible just to sell the idea of Megan being attracted to to General Yen to the American public, because you could imagine that they wouldn't do that i mean it was 1932 and people were racist then and people are racist now so yeah it was it was scandalous to imagine an american missionary girl falling in love with a general with a with a chinese general war warlord but then you see you see her sort of in a thing and in a desires by that sort of daydream sequence and then, and then you see her go, going through all the trouble and ritual to dress herself and don the Asian clothing only to get changed at the last minute and put on her European clothes and no makeup at all. So you see her going like, do I want this? Do I not want this? What's going on? Um, also, yeah, getting dressed and dressed is like mandatory pre-code scenes. Um, I'm, I'm talking about the bath sequence and getting her in her underwear. Uh, I do have a few um, things about Neil Astor. You said he uh, he's he's a Danish-born Swede. He was called the male Greta Garbo. You might not see it in the yellow makeup. Also, the eyebrows again very distracting. But he has quite a face. I thought he was quite attractive. Uh, he was also gay. So yeah, 
Pride Month. I think we should mention that. Yeah, he was he was gay and he was actually involved in a lavender man marriage and he had a kid. But his his career was, and yeah. I was gonna say, was he known to be gay at the time? No, of course not. Yeah, no, I, I was curious. I was. Uh... No, I don't think so. I found it. Um, I found this information, but I don't think it was. I don't think it was. He was made to to marry a woman. Because of that, it was known at the time among studio people and and actors, just like George Cukor was known to be gay and Greta Garbo. Well, it's still debatable. He did some. He made some films with Greta Garbo, and I think they were they were friends because they were both from from Sweden. Uh, and I think I read some place that he proposed to her, but she refused. She she would never marry. Um, also, Barbara Stanwyck has there's rumors that she was she was gay. Whether this is true or not, I don't know, but she's definitely a true gay icon, and I think that's where the Stanny nickname comes from. It's also quite funny because she was she's always been a staunch conservative and very very Republican all her life. I've read that her second husband. Robert Taylor, actually, yeah, he um, he t uh, testified against communists during the witch trials, the McCarthy era. So yeah, I know. I found that out, and yeah, she was she didn't testify, but her her husband at the time did, and it was a bit wow. Didn't expect that from her. But at the same time, she's always been. I've I've read lots of interviews of other people talking about Barbara Stanwyck, and everyone praised her for being very very kind to to young, upstart art actors. Um, she was very sweet and friendly and helpful to um, Marilyn Monroe when she started, as well as Will William Holden. And both have have said that she was the, one of the very few people in the in the industry with seniority who helped the young people coming in. But yeah, um, sorry, that was quite a long parenthesis. I just wanted to say, yeah, no Ast Nils Astor's performance. I thought it was quite quite stunning and quite multi-layered. I felt drawn in by him. He's charming, he's suave. I think both him and I mean I know it's it's not okay to talk about him as if he were Asian, but his character, General Yen and, and Mali, they prove that there is more to, to the Chinese than mere barbarism or whatever the American missionaries like to label them. Mali is I think she's the quintessential woman scorned which is why there's motivation behind her betraying General Yen she was she was number one concubine but she's then demoted and then she feels like she has to do something to yeah to get back at him and everyone would anyone would do that it's not yeah it's not barb backstabbing Asians so I was saying that Mali, she's the woman's corn, and she would 
it's just in every woman. It's not. It's not. I don't think it's anything typically Chinese, despite the fact that they might want to pin that. Oh yeah, the backstabbing Chinese or whatnot. Um. Yeah. I I liked her character and I felt bad for her because she's been demoted. At the same time. Yeah, it's just General Yen, I, like I said to you before, I think it was him who taught Megan a lesson, not the other way around. In order to teach Megan the darkness of the human character, to save her from the gullible missionary propaganda, he's basically staking his whole life on it, he's got integrity. Yeah, he dies at the end, but he hasn't lost, he's, he has lived and loved on his own terms, to quote Charles Foster Kane. Those are the only terms anyone has ever known. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, Toshio Mori, I thought she was very believable and I don't think she was made into a caricature. I thought she was, she gave gravitas to, to a Chinese character. Yeah, small um, note, Anna Mai Wong was supposed to have played her, but somehow she didn't get the part. She would, of course, play a similar character in Shanghai Express, I'm not sure if you've seen it, which is another pre-code. It was starring Malena Dietrich and directed by Joseph von Sternberg, same year of release, 1932. And it, I think it deals with Chinese civil war as well. Yeah, so we might want to read. I've, add, I've I've added that to the list. Yeah, we might we might want to readdress it um, at a future date. Walter Connolly, uh, playing Jones, again. I I love the fact that he picked up on the fact that he's not he's not a likable character, and he's again he's I think. In terms of stereotypes, he's the quintessential American, isn't he? He always sees profit wherever he goes and he tries to sort of make profit from the plight of other people. Um, he's a great, Walter Connolly is a great character actor. I'll talk about him more when we discuss 20th century, which is the zaniest scruple comedy that has ever zaned. Yes, that's a word. Say that again. <laughs> what 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 film are you referring to? Twentieth century. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. And you said it's what? The zaniest scribble comedy that has ever zaned. Well, you actually managed to repeat that verbatim. Okay, that's fine. No, yeah, <laughs> we, we 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 yeah. Spoiler alert: we have that film on the list. We do, I know. So we will talk about. I we'll talk about Walter Connolly, and yeah, he's brilliant. And like you say, yeah, Capra is, Capra, Frank Capra is a genius. I thought the direction was exquisite and the opulence of Yen's palace is quite quite something. I thought that the set design was incredible, especially for a film that was not made on a lavish budget. He didn't get nominated for any awards. However, I think Frank Capra won three Oscars throughout his career. For direction and yeah 
Um, we should. I'm, I'm sure we'll talk, we'll get to talk a bit more about Frank Capra in a future episode. Yeah, but, I mean, I do. I mean, I do want to talk about. I do want to see it happen one night. It pops up quite a lot on film lists. I think um, he's won. He's won his first Oscars for that one. And same with um, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, which I only know through references in The Simpsons. Of course, so, I knew you were going to say Simpsons. Um, <laughs> uh, there's an episode called Lisa Simpson Goes to Washington. No, yeah, Lisa Simpson Goes to Washington. And it kind of apparently apes the, the plot of that. So, yeah. So, yeah. Capra would, would be a good one to, to talk about in the future. All in all, I just wanted to say that I, for me, it felt as if this film was trying to add a layer of ridicule on most American missionaries going to China and trying to elevate as much as possible during the 30s the idea of Chinese being people with integrity and people with, with, with values and honour. Because in the end, General Yan does kill himself, but he's already lived. He's he's lived life on his own terms, and he's he's chosen that way to show Megan that there are people who aren't as good as she might expect. So he he does have integrity, and I, I quite like him as a character. It would have been great to to have seen an Asian actor playing him, but I do think that Nils Aster held his own yeah that's okay. about it I think so we, we're moving on we're, we're moving 50 years 54 years in fact um, to uh, the second film today uh, Big Trouble in Little China uh, directed by John Carpenter, starring Kurt Russell and Kim Cattrall, and Dennis Dunn, James Hong, Victor Wong. Uh, so yeah, um, got a bit of a synopsis. I don't know if you can sum up this film in a synopsis, but I'm gonna uh, got one anyway. Um, when trucker Jack Burton agreed to take his friend Wang Chi to pick up his fiance at the airport, he never expected to get involved in a supernatural battle between good and evil. Wang's fiance has emerald green eyes, which makes her the perfect target for a mortal sorcerer Lopan and his three invincible cronies. Lopan must marry a girl with green eyes so he can regain his physical form. So, um, I'm trying to think of a, of, a, of a Jack Burton quote to kind of kick it off, but I'm just gonna. I I, I just need to know. I just need to know what you thought. Um, um, yeah. I mean. Let's just say it's very hard to dislike Kurt Russell. Even when he's a celestial, evil, twisted, psychopathic celestial being, you kind of like him. Um, oh, you're referring to Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Yeah, yeah. of course. It took me a minute. It took me a minute there to figure out what you were talking about. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, yeah, I liked it. I did like it. I like John Carpenter as a director. Um, I like horror films. I sort of, but I, overall, I liked it. Okay, there was bits that I was a bit left indifferent to, 
and I'll, I'll 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 talk a bit about that in a minute. I just just let me say when I was four or five years old, my parents used to love watching martial arts films. Yeah, and I used to lie to them and say that I loved them too, so they won't send me to bed. And this watching this made me rem remember that bit where I was like, oh, so this fighting. I don't care about that fighting. I really don't care. So there was bits where I was like, oh, okay, here we go, here we go. There's fighting again. I like Kurt Russell. Um, Tango and Cash, Overboard. I think they're super underrated. I like what John Carpenter's done with this film. I think to make the American, like the superhero American, who's a blundering idiot. I thought that was brilliant. Um, but you know, I think this is one of the reasons we're doing this podcast. I would not actively have watched this film. I wouldn't actively seek this genre of like new Western, Western, well, supernatural slash Western slash Asian. I wouldn't actively look, seek it out, but yeah, so I kind of, I'm glad I've watched it because it was fun. It was it was enjoyable to watch and yeah Kurt Russell great at playing idiots who think they're the best thing since sliced bread that scene where he's smeared with lipstick and acts all cool I think is worth that scene alone is worth the price of admission <laughs> I thought that was or when he shoots the gun and he just knocks himself out unconscious um, Dennis Dunn was great. I like he's the hero who didn't we didn't know we needed, but we did we needed him. I like the dynamic between him and and Kurt Russell, and also like the and elements of over the top Chinese mythology and super idiotic American culture. I can see why this film is a cult classic, and it deserves to be. But there's a bit too much fighting for me and some really icky monsters that I just wanted to go away. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to see more of Kurt Russell with that hair parting. I was that was part that was just brilliant. I like I like I just I just realized I think I like seeing Kurt Russell making such a fool of himself. And when he pretends to be a businessman to go to the um what is it, like a brothel? Yeah, where they're selling selling women, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. Where he's like, what? Just icky. I didn't expect to have a problem with Kim Cattrall's acting, but I did. Okay. Uh, I thought she wasn't... Uh, it was just a bit of confusion, I think. I thought her acting wasn't serious enough or goofy enough to work with the rest of the movie. I think she should have picked one and stick with it if she's been over the top serious like dramatic it would have worked because yeah but if she played it as goofy as russell crowe again i think it would have worked but she, she kurt, i don't know kurt russell kurt russell what you said russell you said russell crowe kurt russell sorry no not russell crowe <laughs> ew <laughs> uh i'm perhaps i'm just used to her being samantha jones about it and nothing else I don't think she's, I, to be fair, I don't think she has much range as an actress, unfortunately, because I really like her. 
I really liked her. She was my favorite character in Insects in the City. So I was exp- I was kind of looking forward to see her in something else. But it just she's to- totally me... my totally my favorite character in Sex and the City too. Like I've seen every episode of that. I've seen one episode and I turned it off after like fifteen minutes. Um, yeah. Well, I, I like... think only I think I only turned it on literally because of Kim Cattrall. Like I think I was only curious because of her, and immediately knew this wasn't for me. <laughs> well what you felt about that show it might be in part what i felt about this film it just maybe not for me because there was a lot of fighting and a lot of icky monsters and what is it with the big nails what and the beards and oh no so yeah it was it was interesting but i wouldn't actively seek this genre out i do like kurt russell but I would probably watch Tango and Cash again rather than watch this again. Sorry. That's, that's, that's all right. That's but yeah, fine. that's kind of, yeah, that was kind of what I had. Um. So yeah, no, no, I mean, you've, yeah, I mean, you kind of, I kind of, I was expecting you to say that you had a lot of fun with it, but wasn't for you, as it were. Um. I said last week that this is one of my favorite films. Um. And rewatching it again for the podcast, I, I was probably... <laughs> I've got a top 20 list on Letterboxd that it's probably moved up a couple of places. Um, yeah, this this film for me is, is a lot of fun. I, I kind of see it as a comfort movie as well. Because um, it's 99 minutes long and it's just it just goes and it's just a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, I've kind of got some background stuff that's kind of intertwined with film specifics um so if you kind of want to jump in on on anything that i say just just say um so the film uh was rushed into production to be released in july 1986 um to beat the similarly themed the golden child uh which starred eddie murphy and was due for release in in december of that year um both films were critically panned uh, by critics um, but Big Trouble in Little China was the final financial flop of the two, only making uh, eleven, just over eleven million in domestic box office um, out of I think a budget of twenty to twenty five million. And The Golden Child, however, made seventy nine point eight million in the box office. Um, to put that into kind of comparison with the high, the highest grossing film of that year, Top Gun, which was the highest grossing film of nineteen eighty six, made one hundred and sixty. Um, and you think about the kind of big hit that was, um, kind of puts into perspective the difference in box office uh, success that these three films kind of saw. Um, but out of the two, between Big Trouble and Little China and The Golden Child, nobody talks about The Golden Child because <laughs> it's a terrible film. Um, but Big Trouble has kind of ended up enduring, it's just kind of become this cult classic. And I think this is in part due to the reworked script. Um, so the original script uh, was written by... Uh, I have the names with me right there. Uh, so this script was written by uh, David Feinstein and Gary Goldman, and it was kind of it was set in 1890 San Francisco. Um, and then the script was reworked by um, uh, a guy called W.D. Richter, um, who... If you were to know him from anything, he is the producer slash director of Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, 
um, which is a hell of a title and a hell of a good film, which I'd love to get on the podcast. Um, so what he did is he moved the original setting of the 1890s San Francisco and kind of moved it to contemporary Chinatown in San Francisco. And I think it is all the stronger for it. Uh, I've got a really interesting quote for him and he kind of compares Big Trouble with another film, which it doesn't make any sense. But anyway, um, I believed if, like in Rosemary's Baby, you presented the foreground story in a familiar context rather than San Francisco at the turn of the century, which distances the audience immediately and just have one simple remove, the world underground, you have a much better chance of making direct contact with the audience. So he uses Rosemary's Baby as an interesting comparison. Um, and I think it, that kind of works as well. Like, because you think about Rosemary's Baby, if it didn't, if it wasn't in 1960s, is it New York that film is in? Is it Paris? Where is that film set? New York. Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, Rosemary's Baby. That's New York, isn't it? Yeah, it's the, the Dakota building in New York. Yeah. Um, and you think about, you know, with all the weird shit that goes on in that film, if you have to have it in a different time period, then that's going to take the, remove the audiences further. So it kind of made sense. Like, it, it makes really good sense in, in terms of script writing view. Um, but Weinstein and Goldwyn didn't agree. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, so his script, um, British version of the script, kind of moves along at a considerable pace. And... Um, he introduces us to Jack Burton, played by Kurt Russell, Wang Chi, played by Dennis Dunn, and Chinatown, and all the mystery underneath the film at a really frightening rate. And then it just doesn't let up until the end. Like, it just keeps going. Um, it's worth noting, I don't know if you kind of noticed that the opening prologue didn't fit. I don't know if you noticed that. It didn't fit, no. And I read yeah. about it, and apparently they've added that in to make but Russell's character more likable or something like that. Yeah, so it it wasn't in the original script and it the, the, the this little prologue you have Egg Chen um being spoken to by a guy that's going to become his lawyer um played by uh, the great character actor um Jerry Hardlin who people would know as playing Deep Throat in the X-Files. Um this was added because the studio couldn't get their heads around the premise about who Jack Burton was, about that he was the psychic to Wang's hero. Like he they just didn't get it. They they couldn't understand the subverting of movie tropes, um, of the of you know, the subverting of the action movie that John Carpenter was was going for. Um and this kind of this whole subversion, you know, is kind of what made the movies kind of stick out and in my view means that the film is was kind of destined to end up becoming the cult classic that it is today. Um, the whole meddling of the studio also meant that you had extra dialogue added in to explain certain things, um, which wasn't really needed. For example, the alleyway fight at the beginning. Um, that originally had no exposition dialogue, um, that you had Wang talking to you know, Kurt Russell asking questions, even though as funny as that is, like, you know, that the explanations given by Wang, um, that was added because the studios couldn't get their heads around the fact that the good got the, the bad guys dressed in black and the good guys dressed in white. They, they, you know, <laughs> they, they just couldn't figure it out. Um, and like, again, they, the studio, arguably messed up the promotional campaign and um, they reportedly told Kurt Russell 
of these massive ads that they were going to take out for the film but then it just didn't meet the standards of other films that came out in that year and Kurt Russell even complained that some of the promotional material portrayed Jack Burton not looking like him mm. um, so 20th Century Fox really f- screwed the pooch but um, another potential reason for the film not doing very well is it was released um, I only literally found out this about this today um, it was released uh, 16 days before James Cameron's Aliens um, so the, you can argue that the film uh, Big Trouble in China was unable to kind of break through the hype surrounding Cameron's sequel to a sci-fi classic um, which kind of kind of makes sense it is unfair like I, 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 did, I think it's I think the film is kind of just ended up destined to become this cult classic as it were like even whilst watching it um so what carpenter does what john carpenter does in this film is he kind of takes the traditional tropes of action movies and then turn them on their head so i was i I really liked that you picked up on jack burton not being the hero um i think it's hard to to see him as a hero because he's he's anything but he's such an idiot yeah so instead he's a lovely he's a lovable idiot yeah so in, instead of like in usual action films where you have the white protagonist and Asian sidekick, the the joke here is that despite Jack Jack Burton's big bravado personality, he is a bumbling sidekick, whereas Wang is the hero that fights with ease, and he is high, He's the one that high, that is highly skilled and competent. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think Kurt Russell. You you picked up on this really well. Like Kurt Russell's performance, I think, is here is key to making this work. Um, I really cannot think of another actor that worked in the eighties that could that would deliberately make himself look the fool for the sake of the film. You know, he's you, so you, good you, at you, it. Yeah, like you picked up on him being knocked out before the big fight, him not being able to pull out his knife or his boot and throw it to one side, and then coming <laughs> back and the fight's over. Um, or like you know, he has his lipstick on the lipstick on his lips while he faces David Lopin. Which, in fact, was apparently Kurt Russell's idea because they noticed that the lipstick on Kim Cattrall's uh, lips came off really easily. So apparently, ah, it was their idea to brilliant. have that. That was um, brilliant. Yeah, I was. I think that was that got me to chuckle the most to see him like, you know, what old what old Jack says, and you're like, what? Look at yourself. <laughs> um. There is there is a brilliant supercut on YouTube, which I think I sent you, that kind of pulls together all the questions that Jack Burton asked. You did send that to me, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah, and it it, it becomes increasingly obvious when you're watching the supercut and whilst we're watching the film that he has no idea what's going on, even when everything is kind of finished. He he literally has no idea what goes on. Um. David Lopan, I think, is a pretty frightening villain, in my opinion. Like, I think he's a really effective villain. Um, James Hong, the director, uh, not the director, the actor, um, I think he, I can just see that he really enjoyed hamming it up and playing a really hammy, sinister he, he old man. He does ham it up, but it's just like, I didn't feel frightened by him. Cause what is it with those nails? That was ridiculous. Because I, I th- he's, like, 2,000 years old. Like, you know, he's... Of well, course he he's going to have long nails. nails. He can cut his nails every now and then. I mean, in 2,000 years, you've, you've, you know, nail clippers have been invented. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Um, like James Hong, who I I haven't seen in many films. I've seen him in um, quite a lot of TV stuff um, that I've been watching. So um, I was watching Seinfeld last year and working my way through that. And he appears as the maitre d' in the Chinese restaurant episode in the oh. first season of Seinfeld. And I was sat there oh. watching it. I was like, that's low pad. <laughs> Just like properly freaked out. I didn't out. pick up on that. But yeah, he's a brilliant, he's a brilliant maitre d' because he doesn't let Seinfeld and his friends to eat at the restaurant. He keeps them waiting forever. Yeah. And you can argue that like that whole episode where they go into the Chinese restaurant and nothing happens, that pretty much sets up the rest of Seinfeld to come. Yeah. Um, like their best episodes are always where they go into places and nothing actually ever happens, like walking around the car parking lot, for example. Trying like, to find a car. Um, yeah. Try to find a car. You know, it's all it's a show about nothing. Anyway, um, I could talk about Seinfeld quite a lot, but we talk about Big Trouble. Um, I got an interesting fact about James Hong. Um, that is related to what we were talking about the other week, and what we've been talking about with Neil Zasser. Um, he got his show in. He got a start in show business, um, going to USO shows during World War Two, and performing as Al Johnson in blackface. Mm. Um. So yeah, it all kind of comes around. Yeah. Well, um, at least at least Hollywood's made some progress in in managing to cast Asian actors as Asian. Um, in yeah. Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, that's progress. If you want to put it like that, I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, this is nineteen eighty, so yeah, yeah. Um, they were originally, um, originally, uh, Jackie Chan was approached for the role of Wang, um, but because he had a couple of flops at that time in Hollywood, he just wanted to focus on his Hong Kong stuff, um, and it kind of makes me go into this alternate world of what if Jackie Chan was in this as well and I can't get over seeing Jackie Chan and Kurt Russell interacting especially 1980s Jackie Chan you know it just mm. I don't know um Dennis Dunn is, is fantastic I think he's really really good in this so I, I, I do I'm yeah glad I liked with, him I'm glad with what we've got I'm glad with what we've got um so another another subversion of of these uh, <laughs> of these movie tropes is his relationship with Gracie Law played by Kim Cattrall um <coughs> sorry so they don't fall in love instantly you know she's not impressed by him but Co you kind of see that she grows to like him as his heroic side comes out and i use heroic in quotation marks um you know but he he doesn't drive off into the sunset with her despite her suggestion you know you know the banter in through the film is playful there's a there's a, there's a it's a quite a love-hate relationship um i read that john carpenter likened the dialogue um between them to Cary grant and katherine hepburn in bringing up baby which i never kind of thought about before but it kind of works um for me anyway like i kind of no. see the parallel uh, no. you don't know no 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 I'm just repeating what John Carpenter said. Okay, so. I mean, for that to work, you need someone better than Kim Cattrall. Like I said, like I said, I wasn't impressed with her acting on this, and to compare her with Catherine Hepburn, it makes me. Have I'm not an comparing her. I'm. I'm not. No, comparing I know her you. Hepburn. John Carpenter did, but you know, it's just. No, it's, no, he didn't. He he said like he compared the dialogue, like the 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 um creation the construction of the dialogue 
between them as being what Kath, uh, Cary Grant and Kathleen Hepburn do in Bring Up Baby. See, like how John Carpenter is a is a like a massive Howard Hawks fan, um, you know, st- student of Howard Hawks, and you know he's remade Rio Bravo more times than anyone else. Every film that John Carpenter does is a remake of Rio Bravo. Um, so, like, I think you know that th- there's going to be elements of Howard Hawks stuff in Bring Big Trouble Little China, and I think the dialogue, the the dialogue interplay between the two characters, whilst you know, I'm not comparing Catherine Hepburn and Kim Cattrall. Like they're not similar. I agree with you. Um, I'm just pointing out what the dialogue kind of is meant to represent. Um, and I, I think, I think there is a definite similarity with what they're trying to do. Um, whether it works or not. If is we're up talking to you, about intention, to... I agree. If we talk about execution, I do not agree. That's what I mean. I think intention. I think intention is definitely there, and I think execution is matter of personal opinion. Um, okay. but Carpenter isn't interested in the love story you know Eddie and Margot got together um, so did Wang and, and Miao Ying um, but did Jack and Gracie really need to get, drive off into the sunset together no well, he, <laughs> because... had a, he had a date with a slimy monster you have to remember that <laughs> well you think about that the film is a western at heart you know Jack Burton kind of rides into town and saves the day and, and he's wearing then... those weird boots like really westerny oh, boots and i hated those boots. i know i thought they were amazing <laughs> um you know, you know so he, he, saves the, he saves the day and then he, he drives off onto another adventure um so yeah like just a little bit more about kurt russell and john carpenter um they made four films together including um and one tv movie together so the tv movie was uh came out in the 70s um and uh, kurt russell played elvis in that in the the titled film is called elvis um i've not seen it because it's about four hours long and it's really hard to find a copy of it um but they've also done uh, Kurt Russell also played Snake Plissken in Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. Uh, one being uh, a masterpiece, the other being a terrible, terrible film. Um, Kurt Russell also played R.J. McCready in The Thing, which is one of the greatest science fiction films of all time. And obviously Jack Burton in Big Trouble in Little China. Um, and then when, when you kind of listen to the DVD commentary for this, which I did, I, I listened to excerpts of the DVD commentary, it just sounds like old friends chatting like um you know i really doubt the film big trouble little china because this this was yeah i really doubt the film would have worked if neither were comfortable or understood each other like each of they both understand how each other works and i think that's how the film kind of plays to that strength and in my opinion i got another controversial statement i think because i had one the other week um I think this partnership, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell, it joins Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune as cinema's greatest director and actor partner. <laughs> okay. Um, Fine. I, I, controversial opinions abound. Like I'm, I'm going to okay. go there. Fine, you go there. I'm going Something there. tells me you haven't um, seen enough Akira Kurosawa films. <coughs> I'm not, I'm not i'm not saying like the films i'm not I'm, again i'm not talking about the quality of them i'm talking about the partnership 
Like I think the, un the I think Kurt Russell and John Carpenter understand each other as perfectly as Kurosawa and Mifune do. Okay. And same with um uh Hitchcock and Stewart. You know what I mean? Like I think Yeah. <sighs> I, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um so we're going to move on to like it's this film's portrayal of, of Asian culture. I think the film is very respectful of the Asian culture, you know, specifically Chinatown. Um, none of the Asian characters are deemed as corrupt savages, like in Bitter Tea of General Yang. Um, there is no yellow face. Um, there's no cultural appropriation. Um, no, and, you know, the martial arts in the film, it's interesting that you point, picked up, you know, you, it made you reminisce. Like the martial arts in the film, you know, could come straight out of a Jackie Chan movie, or a Wush, you know, some of the Wuxia films of the sixties and seventies. Um, you notice that none of the white characters attempt martial arts or try to copy, and then better techniques of the Asian counterparts. Um, you know, which which has become uh, an issue in the Hollywood movies where you see white actors kind yeah, of picking up, yeah. you know, martial arts and then becoming better than. The Asian people they're fighting against. Um, the white hero, like I said, I think the white hero savior myth isn't supported here because um, Egg Shen, Wang, and the group of fighters do more, <laughs> much, much more of the saving than Jack Burton. Um, and then the mysticism and the magic angle of the film isn't treated as a joke. Like Jack doesn't understand it, but he doesn't mock it. And I think because of this, the audience doesn't either. Um, the so the Asian mystical martial arts style of directors like um, Soy Hark, for example, kind of lives on in this. Um, Jack Burton's T-shirt um, is also a nod to the film's awareness of its respectful portrayal of Asia and martial arts films. I got a quote from Kurt Russell that um, he says that. I always thought the design was his nod to political correctness. He was going to Chinatown. He was going to see Wang. So you know what? I'm going to put on my Chinese shirt. I like this world. I like the people in it. I enjoy them. I'm going to wear my Chinese shirt today. I thought it was a brutally correct in its incorrectness. But he's in the mood. When in Rome, man, wear a toga. And I think like kind of sums up Jack's kind of attitude. He's like, yeah, I, you know, I'm all for it. You know, I like Jack. Yeah, his outfit. I mean, it kind of brings me on to that. His outfit is amazing. It's he got the the blue jeans, the uh, tank top with the the screen print on it. He's got a mullet and the moccasin things with oh, the, the moccasin mullet. boots with the the knife. Um, yeah, I I really really wish I could pull off his outfit. Um. I think nobody apart from Kurt Russell could pull that off. Quite um, possibly, yeah. Uh, yeah. The special effects, I think, are still amazing. I think they're still really, really impressive. Uh, the three storms in particular are really, really impressive. Uh, lightning, for example, like the way the way that's done, it just looks so effective. Um, the lightning and him moving up into the air and stuff, it just looks so cool. And then how thunder explodes at the end, where he kind of blows up and explodes, like that's just really cool. Um, and then the martial arts sequences, uh, John Carpenter, he he used every trick in the book, you know, wires, trampolines, 
reverse movements, upside down sets, and kind of did it like he just went all out on it. <clears throat> so lastly, uh, I, I kind of want to mention the score. Uh, so John Carpenter has pretty much composed, with a few exceptions, all of his own films, um, starting with Dark Star. And then famously his Halloween score, I think John Carpenter kind of pioneered like the synth scout sound in in film, in soundtracks in particular. Um, Halloween, I think, was probably one of the first films to kind of do it. Uh, his score for this film, I think, is insanely good. I read some YouTube comments earlier as I was going through YouTube comments, which is always a sensible thing to do about people's reactions to this score and some of them are really negative about they're saying it's really really bad and it makes me upset because i don't this film this score is really really good um and i think it really helps the film be as unique as it is um i saw him live i saw him live a few years ago um and hearing the pork chop express theme song playing live you know with there was a screen behind that was showing visuals of the film like shots from the film and it's it was it was just amazing it was really really good um did you did you did you listen to the song over the credits yeah i didn't particularly like it to be fair so that that song big trouble in little china um is is by a band called the coupe de villes um who were a project or party band consisting of john carpenter on synth uh, Nick Castle, who is the famous actor who played the shape in Halloween, um, the original Halloween, he was on vocals, and Tommy Lee Wallace, who is the director of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, uh, he was also the voice uh, of the Silver Shamrock commercial in that film, and he was the creator of the original Michael Myers mask, um, is on guitar, um, and they uh, it was produced by a guy called Alan Howarth, who worked with Carpenter, like produced all of most of Carpenter's work. Um, so they they did this song, Big Trouble Little China, and they made an album as well called Waiting on the 80s, which is high on my list of things to own because um, it's really hard to find. Uh, there was actually only 150 copies of this vinyl actually pressed. Um, the music video in particular is so cheesy, so cringy, so 80s um but it is just so so good um and it, it just kind of adds to the spirit of the film like it's just it's just fun the film it the, the film is can be seen as quite cheesy and quite fun and the song kind of reflects that like it's a very very cheesy song um but it's a lot of fun like it's three guys who are famous for horror films just kind of jamming out with synth instruments and I, I I think that's it, it's really nice to see, um, in my opinion. And yeah, I, I John Carpenter is a director I admire a lot. Um, and I really really hope to get another Carpenter film on this list on the podcast. Um, so I don't know if you've seen the thing. I have. Or you have. I you have. have or haven't? I have. Okay. Oh, sorry, you went quiet there. Um, uh, Christine, which is. I haven't um, seen Christine about uh, a killer car uh which is amazing i've seen i've seen a, a 70s film called the car which was a killer car maybe that's that... james bro no yes no, that's james, james brolin that's james yeah yeah no Chris, christine christine came out in the 80s um adapted from the stephen king story of the same name um and then carpenter's one of carpenter's 
final his 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 last good film because he's done he did the the ward in 2006 which wasn't that great and he did ghost of mars in 2000 which is awful um uh, yeah ghost of mars is a terrible but he did a film in 1994 called in the mouth of madness um starring sam neill and it's this hp lovecraft slash stephen king descent into insanity uh kind of talking about the end of the world and it's really really interesting film to watch so yeah i would love to get that film onto the podcast making me feel sad that i haven't spent more time talking about frank capra yeah i mean if we could find a way to link in the mouth of madness with a frank capra film then that would be a good way to go i i would i would honestly think about maybe like you know matching a carpenter film with a howard hawks film because cool. you know like carpenter is such a short you know i mean i've seen rio bravo but i think you know it would have been really cool to watch I'm sure rio we could bravo find with... another howard yeah. hawks film. well 20th century is howard hawks oh we've already got that with something we've already got that with yeah with we something. do i'm not going to say what it is but yeah. yeah um so that's that's kind of that's kind of me done with big trouble like I, I said i have a lot of words on it because as i said it's one of my favorite films and Carpenter's one of my favorite director and Kurt Russell I love so much. Love seeing him in stuff. Um <laughs> a true story. When I saw um I think it's uh, Furious I think it's Furious Eight, Fate of the Furious. I think it's the eighth one. Um when Kurt Russell shows up, I outwardly squealed in the cinema because <laughs> I did not expect him to see to see him in a Fast and Furious film. So yeah. Have you got anything else on Big Trouble in Little China? No, no, that's it. So, what have we got on for next week? Uh, so we're doing. So we're talking about sisters, sisterhood. Oh. Uh, next week. Um, so we're talking about In This Our Life, uh, directed by John Huston from 1942, starring Betty Davis and Olivia De Havilland. Um, Excellent. very much looking forward to that. And we'll be watching this with uh, Raw, um, 2016 film directed by Julia de Cornell, um, which, yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't really want to say much about Raw if people haven't seen it, but it revolves around sisters anyway. So it's, I think it it, it might <laughs> it's going to be an interesting, interesting read, interesting listen yeah cool so yeah uh yeah so danny where can we find you on the internet uh you can find me on twitter at kino joe and my website is kinojoe.co.uk and you can find me on twitter at nick s chandler uh, my website is superatomovision.com and you can find us on twitter at kinotomic and our gmail uh, gmail email address uh, kinotomic at gmail.com yeah say hello send us an email I, our inbox at the moment in our, in our gmail account is, is pretty bare it just contains stuff about analytics you know I, I want to see some personal messages in there I you know Danny do you want to see it do you want to know anything from our listeners I do I want to know whoever liked Nick's 
assessment of Call Me By Your Name. Yeah, so we, So yeah, send we, us some hate our way so we know exactly where we stand. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to, I need to know how many people hate me at the moment. Um for for an episode that was released a few few weeks back. Uh, <laughs> I think this is going to be a hill that I'm going to end up dying on. Um yeah. yeah. So that's it for for this week. Um so it's a goodbye and a thank you from for listening from me. Yeah, goodbye from me. See you next week. Big trouble. Your little child. We got big